0: This week on the Myths and Legends podcast is the story of Daedalus and Icarus. They're the father-son duo, where the father is famous for making wings out of wax, and the son is surprised when the wax does what it does best, and melts. Really though, their story is so much more than that one event, and Daedalus' inventions are basically the cause of everyone's problems throughout these three episodes. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a Russian forest dweller who likes to play harmless pranks. Like letting you think you left your infant in his cradle, rocking at the top of a tree this is the myths and legends podcast episode 17b a portrait of the artificer as a young man previously on the myths and legends podcast i started the story of theseus king Aegeus of athens lost a war and must pay a tribute of 14 young people to king minos every nine years those people go into the Labyrinth as food for the Minotaur. Today, though, we're going to backtrack and see how the Minotaur and the Labyrinth came to be through the work of one man, Daedalus. You might know Daedalus, but I would imagine you know his son, Icarus. The son may be more famous from a modern perspective, but the father has an incredibly interesting and compelling story. As a note before getting started, the story will begin somewhere in the middle of last week's and end far after the story of Theseus and the Minotaur. This is completely about Daedalus, and while it's outside the events of last week, he's a big influence on them. It speaks to just how rich and interesting these stories are, that there are so many facets to them. Now, we're going to start back in Athens, after Theseus was born in treason, but before the Panathenaic games, and the war with Crete. Daedalus strained under the weight of the sack he had slung over his shoulder as he walked through Athens. He just needed to get out of the city. One after another, people asked the famed inventor if he needed help. No, he said, he had killed a large serpent near the base of the Acropolis early that morning. He was just taking it out of the city to dispose of it, as the law in Athens at the time required. People thanked him for his service, for dispatching such a dangerous animal, and let him go. At the gate, Daedalus appeared annoyed, He was famous enough. Maybe they wouldn't be curious. Maybe they wouldn't detain him with inane questions. They wouldn't have been curious, but they saw the bag was dripping blood. A lot of it. He explained that serpents bleed when they die. You don't need to see what's in the bag. But they said, yeah, they needed to check. It wasn't anything personal. It's just when someone has a large bag dripping blood, they kind of wouldn't be doing their job if they didn't take a look. It wouldn't take long, They just had to see what was inside to confirm. The guards looked up from the bag, mouths open in shock. It... It wasn't a serpent at all. It was the crumpled, dripping remains of Daedalus' young apprentice. Daedalus was on house arrest, awaiting his trial. He would, at best, be exiled, and at worst, executed. It had been an accident. At least that's what he kept telling himself. Talos... His 12-year-old nephew and the son of his sister had been his apprentice for a few years, but already the protege had surpassed his tutor. Daedalus took the boy on when, over at Daedalus' house one day, he saw the boy take a fish's spine and use it to cut a piece of wood. They both realized it at the same time, and together Daedalus and Talos forged the very first saw. The boy flourished working with his uncle, and in time he invented the first potter's wheel, a compass for drawing circles, and other things. Time passed, and the boy began to be better known than his uncle, and Daedalus grew jealous. The boy said he needed to talk, and Daedalus proposed that they meet at the top of the Acropolis, on the roof of the Temple of Athena. There, they watched the sun rise over the whole city. In that moment of peace, Talos told his uncle that he would be leaving his tutelage. What? Yeah, said Talos, I'm way better at this than you, and I'm like a third of your age, and I'm already better known in the city than you. No offense, but I don't need you. Daedalus was panicking. The boy was right. He was already better known in Athens than his uncle, but Daedalus had been getting the credit because the boy was working for him. If Talos left Daedalus, then his uncle would fade into obscurity, made all the worse because he had been eclipsed by his child nephew. His fists were white with rage, and he couldn't even hear Talos finish. The boy moved to pat his uncle on the back, but Daedalus pushed him away sharply. Daedalus didn't need the sympathy of the likes of him. Maybe he didn't know how close the boy was to the edge, or how hard he had shoved him. Maybe he was too slow to react when he felt Talos wavering on the edge of the roof of the temple, his fingertips grazing his uncle's robe. Maybe there wasn't enough time to reach out. Regardless, Daedalus just stood there, and watched his young apprentice fall wordlessly into the morning sky. Talos didn't even have time to scream before he hit the stone floor at the bottom. On house arrest, Daedalus thought about it. Accident or no, it wouldn't go well for him at trial. Then, he heard noises outside his door. He perked up. The guards wouldn't bug him at night. What was going on? His son, Icarus, just a little older than Talos, appeared in the doorway. Time to go. The boy had always been resourceful, if a bit brash. Daedalus sprung up and began shoving his personal things into a pack. The guards were sleeping they likely had only moments. After they gathered as much as they could, Daedalus and his son slipped past the guards, through the quiet streets of Athens, and into the night. They lived in exile, and the Athenians didn't forget him or his crime. And though he was always ahead of them, Leaving cities and villages as people began to ask too many questions, the Athenians were closing the gap, and would have him soon. Then, the war broke out. The war between Athens and Crete, though costing thousands of lives, was the perfect opportunity for Daedalus. Athens was under siege, and the last place they would be able to go was Crete. King Minos of Crete welcomed the famous, defecting inventor, and his son with open arms. But the war continued, and eventually the novelty of Daedalus wore off, as the war consumed more and more of Minos' attention. In addition to the troubles with Athens, Minos, like Aegeus, had problems at home. He, too, had brothers, and years and years ago he had been named heir by his father. Well, to demonstrate his power and to keep his brothers in their place, he said that whatever he prayed for would come to pass. This seems like something that would immediately have disastrous consequences. But, no, the Greek gods were apparently okay with it and those disastrous consequences were slightly delayed. Minas prayed for a majestic bull to come out of the water, which he would immediately sacrifice to Poseidon. A massive white bull rose from the surf and was grabbed by the attendants. Taking his hubris one step too far, Minas decided that, wow, this bull was really nice. In a time where cattle was occasionally used as currency, having a bull that people witnessed as directly coming from the gods was a big deal. Well, Poseidon was not happy about this at all, and thought up a particularly devious curse. If King Minos loved the bull so much, perhaps the other people in his kingdom might love the bull even more. Perhaps his wife. King Minos' wife began to spend more time out in the field, and found that she appreciated the bull in a way her husband didn't. This admiration grew in her mind until it consumed her thoughts. She had to get this bull out of her head. She remembered the exiled Athenian artificer that her husband had taken in, named Daedalus. Maybe he would have the answer. He didn't judge. He just wanted to be close to power. And he does have the answer. He builds a very nice-looking hollow cow body. And I'll let your imagination do the rest. Because talking about this whole thing on a podcast listened to by thousands of people is making me a little uncomfortable. As an aside, this story made the ancient Greeks uncomfortable too. There's a version of the story without the Minotaur, where instead, the tribute of young people from Athens went to an especially cruel general named Taurus, who would make them compete for their lives. The Labyrinth was just a larger than normal prison. Theseus won one of the competitions one time, and Minos ended the competition in tribute. No half-bull people, no giant mazes. The desire ceased afterwards for Minos' wife, and I can only imagine that she was horrified at what the curse had forced her to do. Time passed and she found that she was pregnant, and dread grew in her. Minos and everyone else were excited for her, but she knew what it was, and gave birth in secret. And she was right. The baby was a normal baby up to the chest, but it had the head of a bull. Minos, when he found out, wanted it dead, but she only felt sorry for it. She wouldn't let Minos kill it, and raise the poor thing. Unfortunately, her goodwill was misguided. The Minotaur, as it would be called, grew quickly, In weeks, he was moving, and in months he was the size of a ten-year-old. Like the pig-faced ladies, they kept him cloistered up in the palace, a great source of shame. When Hercules came seeking the Cretan bull on one of his labors, Minos was happy to allow him to capture it and take it to Mycenae, not knowing it would be the bull to kill one of his sons a few years later, and it seemed like no normal food could satisfy the Minotaur. They began letting him out at night in the countryside, and he would come back more controllable, less feral. Then King Minos began to hear reports of people disappearing on the road. Travelers not reaching their destination in greater and greater numbers, and children vanishing out of their homes and never returning. With a gasp, King Minos realized what was happening. Minos went to the oracle seeking an answer about how to contain the beast, and he was directed to Daedalus, the craftsman that, unbeknownst to him, had aided in the conception of the beast. Now, though, this inventor would be some use to him. The Athenian was happy to be back close to power. He said he had an idea. He thought of a labyrinth, a massive underground maze of countless winding paths that were either dead ends or opened up into themselves, so that once someone entered, they would never find their way out. Minos then sailed to Athens to see to the end of the war himself and left Daedalus in charge of building the maze, giving him a team of workers to hew a labyrinth out of stone. The legendary craftsman had a map, and set the men to work. They worked for months and months, following the plan, until the labyrinth was nearly completed. Each night, they would follow Daedalus's map back. On the last day of construction, at the heart of the labyrinth, it was a smaller team with Daedalus. They just had to finish out the last few passageways, and then they would be able to leave. They finished, and Daedalus reached down for the map, but found nothing. He grabbed a torch and looked through everything, but he couldn't find it. Daedalus began to shake. He immediately knew the consequences of being lost in Labyrinth. They were going to die down here. There was no way out without the map, and even though the inventor didn't go into the Labyrinth without a week's worth of provisions, he was now at the center of the most devious prison ever, It was designed to engender panic, despair, and hopelessness in anyone trapped inside. Your mind would be defeated long before your body collapsed from hunger or thirst. Daedalus calmed himself and went to work. He designed this thing. They could find their way out in a week. Ten days later, the group sat in a passage of the labyrinth that looked like every other passage of the labyrinth, in darkness, despairing their situation. A few had been unable to go on, and stayed behind at other forking paths, and the current number of men had only been able to stay alive for so long because they found a natural spring that they had accidentally opened up in their work. Daedalus had been able to keep most of his food a secret from the workers, and while he had tried to remember as much of the labyrinth as he could, his memory was incomplete, and navigation especially difficult in the dark. In addition, the men were starting to get... hungry, too and seeing as they were workers, and he a comparatively less hardy inventor, he began to feel the isolation of the countless dark passages. For his provisions, and him, to last, he would need to leave. That night, or what they thought was night in the complete darkness of the labyrinth, Daedalus snuck off with one of the few remaining torches. Two weeks later, and nearly a month after he entered the labyrinth, he collapsed in the hallway to the entrance. He was nearly starved to death, clothes in tatters, with the start of a dirty, tangled beard. He wasn't proud of what he had done, but he felt vindicated when, sitting at the entrance to the labyrinth, hoping, waiting for the others, he could barely hear the cries of despair off in the darkness. Then silence. The guards came with the Minotaur, and he protested putting it in there so early, when the workers could still be alive. But orders were orders, and Minos wanted the Minotaur in there as soon as the thing was complete. Daedalus had said that it was finished, so the thing was going in. That night, they didn't lead the minotaur back to his cell, but showed him to this special one. He had an animal-like curiosity to the darkness, spurred on by the meat someone had thrown in, and they waited until he crossed the threshold to the maze and slammed the heavy stone door behind him. He had butted it, or pounded on it, whatever minotaurs do, but then he smelled something off in the distance, and followed the scent deeper into the labyrinth, to what few workers had remained alive the Minotaur was now forever trapped in the labyrinth. Daedalus gave up and went home, but found that the guards stayed with him. He was annoyed when they followed him into his home, and surprised when they informed him that he needed to pack up. He was leaving. Leaving? What was all this about? He had just built the king a maze for his monstrous son, and now he was being exiled from Crete, too? Not quite, the guards said. Daedalus and Icarus looked out from the high tower, prisoners. Minos heard of Daedalus escaping the labyrinth without the map and deemed him too dangerous to let him run around in the city. If he knew the way out, he could sell it to the Athenians in exchange for forgiving his crimes. Then, they could accidentally lead the Minotaur out. Minos decided to keep Daedalus and his son shut up in the high tower until he figured out what to do with them. King Minos very quickly decided what to do with him when it came out that Daedalus was basically responsible for the Minotaur's existence when he created the hollow cow. Word traveled slowly in those times and the order to put the inventor to death was still en route to Crete. Daedalus guessed at this, but he didn't see any way out. Looking out at the sea, he could see that Minos controlled the ports and the gates out of the city. He knew how Daedalus had escaped from Athens, too, and would put good guards on the men. Daedalus could see that the king controlled everything but the sky. Hmm. The sky. Then, the inventor had an idea. Wings. He drew up some quick plans, but they needed supplies. He went to the door, but found a guard blocking it. Daedalus said he knew he couldn't leave. But could the boy head out to the market? Just to get a few things? You know, food and the like. The guard looked at the skinny, bookish Daedalus. And Icarus was only a teenager. They didn't pose a threat, even if the boy brought back weapons. Sure, the boy could go. Icarus was not an hour when he came back with a couple of bags of candles, and the gaudiest, thickest cloak covered in feathers, and a little bit of food. The guards must have thought that the team went all out with a little bit of money his father had given him, but whatever. They searched the boy for weapons, found none, and waved him onto on the room. Daedalus already had some chairs broken down into rods, and over the next few hours, they softened up the candles, used rope to fashion the rods together, and made a framework for the feathers. They were making two pairs of wings. They worked through the night, plucking the feathers off the cloak, ...and affixing them to the wax. In the end, they had just enough to fill up both sets of wings. Tearing strips of leather, they made harnesses. And Daedalus showed his son Icarus how the wings worked. But the boy was so excited that he didn't appear to be listening. If this worked and they didn't just plummet to their deaths immediately after jumping out of a window... ...they must be smart on how they used these things. They were going to fly over the sea. That way they didn't need to worry about the archers. But they couldn't get too close to the water. If the surf soaked the feathers... The wings wouldn't fly. Also, they couldn't get too high. The closer they got to the sun, the weaker the wax would get. Icarus, I know these wings are cool, but are you even listening? Daedalus just told Icarus to follow his lead. They slid their arms into the wings and tightened the straps. And Daedalus was the first one to try. The first of its kind device that he just thought up yesterday better work on its first try, or else he would end up dashed on the rocks. He went to the window and teetered on the edge. He was nervous, and felt a pang of guilt. Daedalus stepped away from the edge and went to Icarus. The boy could see the tears streaking down his father's face, and they embraced. This was so dangerous, and yet they were both in this situation because of him. He told his son that he was sorry, but said that they would be free and safe soon. It was either this or death, likely by being forced back into the labyrinth to be food for the Minotaur. He hugged his son, went back to the window, and leapt. The sea rushed up and he fanned out his wings and suddenly the sea below stopped growing and he found that he was gradually moving upward. He had done it. He was flying. When Icarus saw his father, he too leapt from the window. He learned flying even faster than his father and they glided along the cliffs and the rocky coast to the wonder of shepherds and fishermen. And that was the last time either of them saw the island of Crete. Soon, the island of Crete was merely a speck in the blue. They flew for hours. They rose and dove, and flew through flocks of birds. The sun was on Daedalus' face, and he was smiling for the first time in years. They would be to modern-day Turkey soon. Far, far away from the wars of Greece, or the multiple kings that wanted his head. No one would know where they went. They would only know that the men disappeared. When they got among the barbarians, they would dispose of the wings, and then no one would know what happened to Daedalus and Icarus. They were finally free. Things were starting to work out for Daedalus. For the first time in years, he felt at peace. Then, he felt something dripping on his arm. Wax. He gasped. Icarus. The boy had been diving and rising, gaining altitude with each rise and speed with each dive. He wanted to go higher and higher, faster and faster. His father appeared lost in thought, and besides... Icarus had gone pretty high before, and nothing had happened. He gained more altitude, and still more. He dove, and he was likely going faster than any human had gone before him. He didn't see a few of the feathers break loose from the wax and flutter off. Then, he caught a warm-up draft, and angled himself to take advantage of it. He flew and flew, and at the apex, he felt as if he was higher than Mount Olympus. He felt powerful. He felt like a god. He was so caught up in taking in these brief moments that he didn't notice the wax, liquefied in the heat, streaming out of the wings toward the sea below. He angled his arms to dive, but they were surprisingly light. He looked at them, and they were just the wooden frames, with the feathers stuck to what few scraps of wax remained. He dropped. Daedalus had caught a little bit of the wax, but Icarus was far in front of him. Daedalus looked up, and the boy was in free fall and he spun in the air. He was looking for his father, reaching for him, shouting for him. Daedalus flew as fast as he could, but he couldn't cover half of the distance before Icarus hit the water with a crack. The feathers fluttered down in a stream behind Icarus, and Daedalus flew right to him without hesitating. He flapped down into the water, ruining the wings. He brought his son up into his arms and tried to get the boy's head up above water. But it didn't matter. Bones were broken all over his body, and his head lolled unnaturally to one side. Icarus had died on impact. Daedalus looked up and saw an island, and swam with the body of his son until every muscle burned. Finally, he felt sand under his feet and dragged the corpse of Icarus ashore. He sat on the beach, holding the body, and wept for his son. There was a small village on the island, and the people there helped Daedalus bury his son. After he buried Icarus, he lived there. He was reclusive and surly, thinking he had escaped his past. But for what? For his son to die by his invention, and to live in ignoble exile on this island? Unfortunately, he hadn't escaped his past. It began catching up to him the moment he hauled his son's body into the village. He had been careful to destroy the wings, but when a fisherman asked him how he had come there... Daedalus accidentally said that he flew. The fisherman laughed it off and forgot about it for months. Slowly, word began to trickle in from Crete, then from other islands. A man and his son flew like birds over the ocean to escape King Minos. Flew, the fisherman said one night while drinking with some passing sailors. He wondered aloud if it had been the stranger that now lived up on the cliffs. The sailors that heard it didn't think much about it and more months intervened, until they were, on a different island, talking about the father and son who had flown. In idle conversation, they mentioned that it could have been some hermit living on an island they visited not too long ago. The people they told it to treated it like fact, and they told others. Who told others? Who told people that knew King Minos? King Minos, as it turns out, was still looking for the man that helped create his greatest shame, and who knew the way out of the labyrinth. He dispatched people who knew Daedalus to the island. Now, in the modern day, known as Icaria, after Icarus, they must take him alive. Minos would need to know who he had told about the labyrinth, and wanted to thank him personally for helping his wife. They knew what Daedalus looked like, and after years in the court of King Minos, he knew what they looked like. When, out walking along a cliff, he noticed two oddly dressed shepherds he hadn't seen before. And when those two not-at-all shepherds broke into his home the next morning, they found it bare. Daedalus was gone. He had slipped away in the night on the next ship passing by. On the next island, he remade the wings and used them to fly west, back to Greece. If Minos could follow him to the ends of the earth, then maybe he was safer back in Greece. He would ingratiate himself to some king and in that way secure his safety. Daedalus eventually found his way to Sicily, mostly by night, to avoid people seeing him, and he dedicated the wings to Apollo and destroyed them. He met with King Cocalus and said that he would serve him on the condition that Daedalus' presence in the court be kept a secret. Cocalus agreed, and Daedalus stayed there. King Minos never forgot, though, and he searched the known world for Daedalus after he escaped the island. He sent men among the barbarians and through all the kingdoms of Greece, but the trail had gone completely cold. Daedalus was still a liability. He knew the labyrinth, and he had helped the Minotaur come into existence. Minos had to find him. Years passed, decades even, and still there was nothing. Minos conquered Athens, and what happens next week came and went, and still Daedalus remained on King Minos's mind. So, one quick note before moving on. The thing I said last week about the timelines not really agreeing still very much applies here. One of the main versions, and many retellings, have Daedalus and Icarus being imprisoned in the labyrinth after the events of next week. And that is absolutely a valid retelling of the story. In those retellings, Icarus is apparently a son Daedalus had with a slave woman in Crete, a detail I found hinted at here and there, but couldn't find a reliable version of. So I made Icarus Athenian. Daedalus would have presumably stayed 20 years in Crete before escaping and the labyrinth in this version would be an extremely large outdoor maze for Daedalus and Icarus to be able to fly from it. I went with Ovid's version of them being shut up in a high tower to keep Daedalus from telling people about the labyrinth, but just know that there are so many versions of this story that making one that includes every detail of even the main versions is pretty much impossible. Also, while I'm on the subject of small changes I've made, one version says Daedalus became lost in his way out from building the labyrinth and barely made it. But none of the sources really say that Daedalus had a team of people building the labyrinth with him. Personally, I can't imagine Daedalus building a place as large as the labyrinth himself, so I included the extra people. But really, they were just a result of me taking the idea that Daedalus built the labyrinth to its logical conclusion. King Cocalus, where Daedalus was hiding, presented him with a challenge one day. To thread a string through a conch shell. Daedalus took the shell, and in minutes came back with a thread through it. He had looped the thread around an ant, and smeared honey on the other end, and the ant did the rest of the work. Daedalus thought nothing of it until, weeks later, he learned in a panic that King Minos was coming to reward King Cockalus. What? Minos had sent word out to all the kings of Greece with a challenge for them. Anyone who could solve it would gain the favor of King Minos, and great riches. Minos knew only Daedalus could do it, and when Cocalus had sent word back that he had completed the task, Minos knew that he finally had the artificer cockles was alarmed Daedalus had served him for years and now he would either lose his artificer or go to war with King Minos a war which he was sure to lose Minos might seek retaliation against him anyway for harboring the fugitive cockles was in a tough spot he talked with Daedalus and they thought it over it was drastic but they decided to kill the king Minos arrived that night, and Cochlus was polite, and told him that he had prepared chambers for the powerful king. In the morning, he would introduce Minos to the man who had solved the problem. Cochlus's daughter saw to Minos' accommodations, and after he was alone, Minos decided to take a bath. Minos was surprised to see that Cochlus had plumbing here. Minos in Crete was actually the first ancient civilization to have pipes and rudimentary plumbing, and that's actually history, not legend. And here it was in Sicily too. Minos was angry. Daedalus was giving away all of his secrets. Oh well, he would have his revenge tomorrow. The warm water began flowing, and Menno sat back in it and began to fall asleep. Daedalus, on the other side of the wall, gave the signal. They simultaneously increased the flow and connected pipes not to the warm water for a bath, but to the very much too warm vat of boiling water. They were separated by a thick stone wall, but they still heard the screams panicked and shrieking at first, then soft sobbing before nothing at all. King Minos had been doused and completely soaked in boiling water. He was dead. There were always people eyeing the throne, so no war between Crete and Cocclus' kingdom took place. Daedalus was eventually able to leave Sicily, as those that were seeking him from Athens died of natural causes or forgot about him entirely, and he was remembered by the people as a brilliant inventor. I like to think that he harbored enormous regret with the way he had lived his life. He left a massive body count, from his 12-year-old nephew in the beginning, to all those killed by the Minotaur he helped create both in and out of the labyrinth he built, to his own son. I tried to avoid moralizing with this podcast, but instead just present the stories and let you decide. This story begs some consideration, though, because the story of Daedalus and Icarus is held up for its moral lessons searching around i found grade school and high school curriculums that talked about the story and mentioned the morals of listen to your elders and do everything in moderation which are good things to do that being said icarus's elder was a murderer on the run who had helped create a super prison for a king who was the enemy of his homeland and the whole lesson of moderation is great but they were flying you can't give someone that sort of power and then maintain the moral high ground when they stretch its capabilities to the limits Daedalus created these things of great power, and simply handed them off to the people. He washes his hands of responsibility, and history largely blames the people to whom he gave the technology. We see Minos as a bad king, feeding people to the Minotaur, and some of the stories paint the wife as lustful and responsible for the beast. And Icarus is a living metaphor for overexcitement and overreach. But without Daedalus, none of it would be possible. None of the things he created were good for anyone Except only for him, and then only for a short time. He's entirely unscrupulous, and he doesn't seem to care who gets his inventions, or what happens to them, as long as he gets to solve a cool problem, and gain the renown of doing so. He's so despicable because he isn't evil. It can be argued that he does all he does in order to survive, after he kills Talos. It's the fact that he's neutral that makes him terrible. He doesn't care who he helps or hurts. He seems to be so obsessed with using his gifts and being significant in the world that he gives no thoughts to the consequences of his actions. That's it for this week. Next week we'll finish the story of Theseus and we'll finally see him entering that great maze and fighting the Minotaur. I want to thank M. Griffington, Laurel Soros, Bones 2016 UK, H. Kanzier, Gem Master Jake, Nordic Gloom, Lord Bull, ronin God's Blood and ian-23 for the reviews on iTunes. It's really exploded lately, and I'm just so grateful. I'm going to start doing just 12 names an episode, because I recorded all the names from all the reviews from around the world last week, and it took me nearly two minutes. It's an amazing problem to have, so thank you, and if you don't hear your name, don't worry, it's definitely coming. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place for helping people find the podcast, and you can find the show at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership on the site. If you'd like to help support the show and get extra episodes each month, that's the way to do it. For $5, less than the price of one and three-quarter shoelaces, you get access to at least one extra episode this month, Fairytale Friday, where this month I'm telling a Celtic story where the king makes a victory coat out of the beards he shaves off his defeated enemies. If you're interested, check out support.mythpodcast.com for more information. The creature this week is the Leshy, a forest creature from Russian folklore. Like most forest creatures, he gets you lost and will laugh at you. But unlike most, he probably won't try to eat you. If you catch him in his human form, he's very easy to spot. He has pale skin, green eyes, green beard, and his boots are on the wrong feet. Also, he's missing the right ear, his eyebrows and eyelashes, and he casts no shadow. If you catch him not in his human form, he's very difficult to spot. He can grow to the size of a tree, or shrink to the size and likeness of a blade of grass. He likes to have some fun with the people he gets lost in the forest. And he's able to mimic every noise of the forest. And noises not of the forest, like the sounds of a baby gurgling and crying in a cradle high in the tree. As someone who's kind of recently a new parent, I can't imagine many things more terrifying than a baby rocking precariously at the top of a tree. There are some ways to avoid him you can gain his respect by putting your clothes on backwards and shoes on the opposite feet. And then he won't get you lost. Alternatively, if you don't care at all about the forest or your personal safety, I read in one place that you can just set the forest ablaze behind you. And the less you will be too concerned with trivialities like rescuing his family and not dying to play practical jokes on you. I was going to end humorously on that point, but really don't burn a forest down after listening to this podcast. Wearing your clothes backwards is far safer than destroying everything in your path. And, really, who doesn't want the respect and admiration of mythological Russian forest dwellers? That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.